Welcome to the Enchanted Ears podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, and probably going to roll into next week, because I think this is probably a two-week split, but we're going to be ranking the 10 movies of the Disney Renaissance. So we've been a little busy watching all 10, and it's been very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, rewatching. But well, some of them we watched for the first time. I think Rescuers Down Under is probably the only one that that we hadn't seen before. But yeah, so for those of you that are not familiar with the Disney Renaissance, it is the 10 movies that primarily in the the 1990s, uh, there's a couple at the end of the 80s, that was kind of Disney's resurgence into animation. So it is, I think, kind of going in order of the year they came out. You have The Little Mermaid, Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. So we're going to be going through and ranking those. Straight fire lineup. Yes. Talking a little bit about uh, what the Renaissance meant for Disney. We also have uh, some sound clips from some other Disney podcasters on what their favorite one was, what their kind of favorite Disney Renaissance movie is. There's a lot of people that like Beauty and the Beast, so spoiler <laughs> alert there. So we will be sprinkling those um, throughout this episode as well. Before we get into the ranking, I know everybody's excited to hear what our thoughts are. I want to kind of cover some Disney news as we always do each week. So uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention with Disney news is Inside the Magic was reporting that there were um, some people on Living with the Land and it started going backwards. So <laughs> what? <laughs> with, with with social media and Twitter and everything, all of these ride fails and, and issues with the rides, everybody knows about now. I mean, 10 years ago, if something happened and there was an issue with an animatronic or something, nobody knew about it because mm-hmm. nobody had a phone. Nobody had a way to post it. Now, anytime anything happens, it's all over the internet. So, so are we talking just like gently drifting backwards or is it like legitimately now you're going through the ride and backwards? No. So what... What happened was it, it, it's kind of the, the former. It sounds like the ride um, stopped, like it shut down momentarily. And if you've ever been on Living with the Land, you know, in any of those boat rides, there's like a, a slight jet that, that keeps the water moving forward okay. to keep the boat going. So it, what it seems like is those just shut off. And then so the boat oh, just kind okay. of started drifting backwards and they started going through the attraction backwards for a short time. I, I have a suggestion for Disney. This is a great alternate ride experience. Go in and ride living with the land backwards. I would love it. Because you figure every time, like if you, you know, if you go on a run on a trail, you go and you look one way and you see everything that's in front of you very well, but you're not necessarily seeing it from that other perspective. So it would be really interesting to ride this backwards. Yeah, I, I would love to do this we have never been on an attraction that's had any sort of issues or malfunctions now this one again it was completely fine the ride just kind of stopped drifted backwards and then started back up they didn't have to you know disembark the boat or anything but that's kind of like i think on my disney bucket list is i want to <laughs> be on a ride when it breaks down and you know something like crazy happens like you drift backwards and living with the land or you you have to you know, exit the vehicle. I do not want to be the person that's on the jungle cruise when it sinks. I do not. I don't want to be that. <laughs> that would be a great story to tell. No. I, I would actually like that. I, I think don't want to get all fun. wet like that or splash. That happened to splash mountain too. A couple of weeks ago, one of the, the boats in splash mountain sank. Oh wow. And people had to jump off. So I don't want to be in that bad of a situation, but more like, can you imagine Disney's customer service though? After that, I mean, oh, you get a ton of fast passes. It would be insane what they would do for you. All right. So yeah, so I, I think that would be something I would love. Yeah, more like... We y- did have the Skyliner experience where that malfunctioned, but that wasn't an attraction. Yeah. yeah, but more like, you know, the lights turn on in Space Mountain or you have to exit the Doom buggy in Haunted Mansion and you kind of get to walk through some of the sets. Like something like that is I think kind of what, what I'm looking for, but who knows. All right. The other piece of uh, Disney news this week is that Disney has come to an agreement with the Equity Actors Union. So they will be returning to work. And with with this, Disney announced that they are going to be offering free COVID testing to its cast members. Oh, nice. And Disney, I think, has said it's not related to the agreement with the with the equity actors but this was one of the things they were pushing for and this is why they did not return so 
anybody that's been to the park since they reopened, um, or if you're following the park reopenings, you're probably aware that like the Beauty and the Beast stage show has not been going on uh, at Hollywood Studios. They've replaced it with, I think it's like a six-piece orchestra just playing Disney music. And that's because those are all um, uh, members of the Equity Actors Union. So because they did not agree to come back, that show was not going on. And one of the big things was uh, around testing and, and having testing available. So Disney has announced this. And I think, you know, part of it probably is with the equity actors and kind of their agreement. But I think the other part is they want to make their cast members feel safe. But I also probably think even more importantly than that is to help guests feel safe because if there is, and it's voluntary testing, but any cast member can sign up and get tested for free. And so I think if you say, hey, we have testing, we're, you know, testing X number of cast members and we haven't had a positive test or, you know, we've had a positive test and we've been able to trace it prevent them from coming to work. I think that all goes even further to helping restore guest confidence because we know that Disney uh, attendance is light and it's lighter than they expected. I mean, Universal just announced this week that they are closing two of their hotels that were open. And so they they were reopened and they would have never reopened them if they didn't think they were going to have the attendance. Um, but now they're they're closing them like next week for the rest of the year. And so it just goes to show you visitors are really like to Orlando right now. So I think anything they can do to kind of help people feel more comfortable going, they're going to do. Yeah. Offering this testing is definitely a smart move by Disney. I think it'll make a lot of people feel better and just help to restore confidence and get things get things running again. Definitely. So, all right. So now let's jump into the ranking of the Disney Renaissance. So before we get into the actual rankings, I think it's kind of important to give a little bit of history and like a little backstory mm-hmm. on this time period. Um, we Again, we kind of mentioned the movies at the start of the show. And I mean, they're all kind of classics. I mean, I think everybody's familiar with all of them. But why it's called the Renaissance is because it was really a return to form for Disney. It was a series of movies where they base the stories off of classic fairy tales and myths and stories very much in the same vein that Walt did in the early years with Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And so it was really a return to form for Disney and kind of following in Walt's footsteps again. And so that's why a lot of people call it that. But also, it was met with commercial and critical success across the board. Right, which is something that Disney had been struggling with for years and years and years to get back. Because as we talked about in our 1980s uh, Disney decade, 1980s episode, they kind of lost themselves They, they as a company after Walt's death. So I think that this, this was definitely, again, as Joe said, a return to form and them finding themselves again. Yeah, and just looking at like like we said, uh, you know, critical success. If you look at the cinema score for all of these movies, now um, Little Mermaid and Rescuers Down Under uh, did not have a cinema score available, but every other movie is no lower than an A minus. So Pocahontas <laughs> got an A minus. Everything else got an A or A plus. <laughs> and the box office um, success was you know was really good again. I mean, you have some major hits here. I mean, obviously the Lion King did close to a billion dollars oh my goodness. in 1994. You know, Aladdin did 500 million worldwide. Beauty and the Beast did 400 million. I mean, you even have, you know, Tarzan doing 448 million, Mulan doing 300 million worldwide. So it was just hit after hit after hit for Disney in this time period. And it also really impacted it impacted other studios as well because when one studio has so much success other studios kind of try to copy it Mm -hmm. and so it really it it made other studios like fox and sony start their own animation companies i mean you had dreamworks you know kind of at the tail end of this you know obviously pixar was was really big at the time as well yeah, um, Shrek was released in 2001, so that is very shortly. I, the end of the Disney Renaissance is 1999, so as you were saying, yeah, other people started to really look into animation as a way, and particularly CG animation, as a way forward. 
Yeah, it's almost like what is happening now with another Disney property in Marvel Mm -hmm. in that, you know, Marvel started 10 years ago and this whole idea of a connected cinematic universe was like never even heard of before. You know, the idea, yes, you had sequels and things, but the idea that you would have multiple franchises intersect in a meaningful way. I mean, not just like, hey, a cameo here or there, but in a meaningful way that you had to see all of the movies to kind of continue the story was never thought of before. And and with the success of that, you see so many other movie studios trying and failing to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. just look at DC. I mean, they, Warner Brothers just announced that they are reshuffling their entire um, like DC studio. And now... Like the whole future of the DC universe is in question again because there's a new head over there at DC. So, I mean, wow. they, they've tried repeatedly to copy Marvel and they can't succeed. I mean, you know, Universal tried it with their Universal Monsters. They were supposed to have this whole big universe of the resurgence of the Universal Monsters. They cast everybody ahead of time. And now that's kind of falling apart. So it, it happened. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, it's happening now with Marvel. We're seeing it, but it kind of happened in the 90s as well with, you know, Disney being the behemoth in animation and all these other studios trying, you know, to create their own animation studios. And I mean, they did have some success. I don't want to make it seem like they were complete failures, but cause you, you know, you do have Shrek and you have, you know, again, like in the early 2000s, the ice age movies and yeah, ice age was released in 2002. Right. So, you know, kind of at the tail end and that's when Disney started kind of falling off again, but it is just interesting, you know, kind of how you have all of this. And, you know, the other thing again is they were, Big award winners. I mean, yeah, nine out of the ten movies. So everyone but Rescuers Down Under was nominated for at least one Academy Award. Of all the ones nominated, only Hunchback, Hercules, and Mulan did not win an Academy Award. And Beauty and the Beast was actually nominated, and it was the first animated feature nominated for Best Picture oh, at the yeah. Academy Award. So. Again, it's not like, you know, Disney just made these movies and they were just kind of like fun kids movies, you know, that the kids wanted to go see. And so they were a commercial success, but they were, I mean, critically acclaimed. They were well respected in the industry by, you know, just looking at the Academy Awards they were nominated for and they won. Many of these soundtracks had, you know, won Grammys and were, you know, certified platinum and diamond soundtracks. Um, you know, some of these are like the most iconic songs of the nineties and, and some, you know, of the biggest names wrote songs for these movies. So it really was just like a crazy run that Disney had with all of these movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's incredible. And again, it was really fun to watch all of them in order to, because you can see, the entry of CG animation. Um, it was really clear in Rescuers Down Under whenever we started. Um, I, I don't think there was really any, and there, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, it didn't seem like there was really much in uh, Little Mermaid or any in Little Mermaid. But this begin, very beginning of Rescuers Down Under where you get this swooping, um, it looks like they're approaching Aluru in Australia and you, you're going flying over the grass. Um, that That started, pretty much kicked off their use of it and you could see them picking cg animation to give different camera angles throughout all of the movies and it's really interesting to see that yeah that was i think probably the most interesting thing for me is because we watched them all in order as well Mm -hmm. and so being able to see how they progressed in the animation style and the use of computer animation and and also just kind of how they would pluck storylines and kind of beats from the previous movies or like you could tell hey you know, Beauty and the Beast was really successful in the CG scene. So it was used heavily in the future. Or, hey, it did really well when we had Elton John write songs for The Lion King. So let's get Phil Collins to do Tarzan. <laughs> and just kind of how that all, you know, played together. And when we talked to Tom Bancroft, uh, if go back and check out that interview from a, a few episodes ago, he kind of mentioned that, that, you know, CG animation was growing in the 90s. And then all of a sudden, it just took over and it's just like one day disney said okay hand-drawn animation is done we're we're switching completely over to cg and it happened as an industry so like you mentioned shrek and ice age and everything that everybody just switched over to computer animation and you can kind of see that and when we get to tarzan we'll talk about it but i think that was their best use of 
computer oh, yeah. animation. Yeah, I was actually going to bring and that, that was up. The last, Just, and that was the last movie of the The way that he's, if you go back and watch those scenes, I mean, there's a lot of scenes where he's surfing through the trees and then they're doing different camera angles and you can see him, um, you know, it, everything is so full and lush and like three-dimensional pretty much. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a great use of that technology. Definitely. All right, so let's hear uh, what Kurt and Lindsay from the Geekin' on WDW podcast, let's hear what some of their favorite... Uh, renaissance movies are well this is curtis and Lindsay stone from the geekin on wdw podcast we mostly talk about disney world but i love this opportunity to talk to joe and angela and their audience about our favorite of these 10 renaissance movies you got the little mermaid the rescuers down under beauty and the beast aladdin the lion king pocahontas the hunchback of notre dame i think you really like that one you like the music from that one i know mm. are you talking about that Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. Lindsay, what's your favorite of all those? I still haven't made up my mind. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so indecisive. How can you pick? You're having a hard time with it. I mean, these Disney movies, out of all the Disney movies, I think are the ones that are most recognizable for their amazing music. Like, yes, Snow White and Cinderella are fun and have good music, but these movies have those ones that get stuck in your head. And then when you think Disney music, you think Renaissance Disney music. Uh-huh. So from like Beauty and the Beast and I mean, Hercules is one of my all time favorites. I know. Just for it. the humor that it brings to. You like all of these movies. I do. I mean, who doesn't really for real? Well, what's your top three? Top three. It's hard to say because my favorite Disney character is Mulan, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie. You know what I mean? Like, okay. I like her as a character. That's all right. Good answer. I think Hercules definitely is on the list. Absolutely is on, is on my list. Because of the music? Because of the music and the humor. And um, who's the guy who plays Hades, that actor? Oh, gosh. I'm never going to... tip of my him. tongue, but yeah. Yeah, but he's fantastic. and Good villain? Yeah, fan- one of the best Disney villains, if not the best, is Hades. I love him. How can you not love Elton John's music in The Lion King? Right, yeah, good. So I think Lion I love King. the Lion King. That's one of my King's top on my ones. list too. I would go with my top three. I would go Little Mermaid, really? uh, Beauty. Well, first one would be Beauty and the Beast. I think I'd put Beauty Beast first. I love the Lion King and the Little Mermaid. They all have attractions on Disney World. That <laughs> <laughs> kind of is good for me. I like the show for Beauty and the Beast. I love the Beauty and the Beast because you played Mrs. Potts. Mrs. Potts in a high school play. It was like the only play I ever saw. <laughs> and I was just amazed by the talent. And we were so excited. You were a sophomore in high school. I was You got to sing. Oh, you were a junior? Yeah, that was my first musical ever. <laughs> oh, I thought you were a sophomore. No, All I didn't right, start got doing that it. wrong. Yeah. But you you sang the classic song from that movie. Beauty and the Beast, the title Beauty song. Beauty and the Beast, the Angela Lansbury song, right? Yeah, I'm now Angela Lansbury. <laughs> oh, well, I thought it was just fantastically amazing. I'm going to go. I love that story. I love the Beast. I love Gaston. You would think with how big of a fan I am of Phantom of the Opera that Beauty and the Beast would be on my list. You are such a fan. Genre, but it's not on my list, I wouldn't say. You're such a fan of Broadway. Lindsay and I had tickets to go to a Broadway show, the Phantom of the Opera, before the COVID hit. Like a week before it it shut down or after it shut down. All right. So what were your top three? I'm going to say Hercules, Lion King, and Aladdin. You own Aladdin number one? No, I, just, I think in that order, Hercules. No, I think Hercules number one, okay. then Aladdin, then The Lion King. What do you like about Aladdin? Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. That is one of my favorite characters. That's absolutely incredible. Nice call. Brings something just perfect to the genie that no one else will ever be able to. We were over at Judy's house, our friend, who's on the podcast very often, and she was playing the live one. Will Smith trying to do it. He does. He, he brought his own thing to it. He does fine, but yeah. yeah, there is just Robin Williams really was amazing. And the thing is, he wasn't a singer. Yeah. But oh my goodness, did he? Does he blow Such a um, talent. everyone out of the water with friend like me? Oh like, my gosh, yeah, it's incredible. Such a they, character. They built the character around him. Yeah. Right. Yes. True. Yeah. He was such a comedic genius. Yeah. Well, yeah. Beauty and the Beast is for me. I like Gaston's. Which cinnamon one I buns? Oh, cinnamon. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about his songs. Like he's got a song just called "Me." I like. I loved the stage show when I was there at Disney World in January. We saw a fantastic Gaston and a, it's like a great bang, bang, boom that that show. It, it just carries right along. But oh, it's it's always good. Always I'm really good. a romantic at heart, anyway. So 
<laughs> She's laughing. Are you beauty or the beast? <laughs> <laughs> I like the romance stories. I'm sorry, I do. It's a good one. I like that one. So, all right, I think we covered this topic. Yeah, I think we hit pretty much all of them except for rescuers, but who talks about rescuers? We have to mention Tarzan because I feel like people don't give Tarzan. <laughs> You know, They're all great do. ones, aren't they? Yeah, Tarzan is really good. Well, thanks again, <laughs> Joe, Joe and Angela. We're still debating which ones we like. It's so hard to pick. Just like when you're at Disney World trying to pick your favorite resorts and food and everything else. It's tough, but it's Disney. I mean, it's all going to be great. Thanks, Joe and Angela, for having us on your show. Come check us out. We're the Geekin' on WDW podcast. Bye, guys. All right, so thanks, Kurt and Lindsay, um, for providing kind of your thoughts on it. You know, I thought it was interesting. I think they make a lot of good points. You know, the Elton John's music and the Lion King. Oh, um, I think, you know, Lindsay's point is interesting of, so of Hades. She liked uh, him as the well, best villain. Well, I think that that's what I voted for as my, I, I think whenever we did our Disney villains episode of the, the best villain, I think that that's what ended up coming out on top for us or for me. So I, I he does across the board do a lot of very interesting things and he's funny and he has a, he, there's a lot going for him. All right, so let's get into our countdown now. So I, I have a feeling that we probably are going to make some enemies with some of these picks, <laughs> depending on this. Um, we may make some friends with some of the picks as well. I will say this was tough. I thought it was going to be a lot easier going into it. Yeah. But then after watching all the movies and watching them so closely, so you could you, you have, they were all fresh in your memory, it, it was very difficult to try to slot them. I mean, I think the first couple, you know, we touch on the the lower ranked ones. I, f- I feel pretty good about, but I want to say once we get to even number like six, I mean, it it's mm. hard. Like I, you could go a lot of different ways with these. Like I feel like today this is the pick I'm going with, but I feel like, <laughs> you know, they could switch around and we went through and we kind of debated these out ourselves and came up with like one conclusive list between us. I think, we probably disagree with some of the picks, but oh, we kind of yeah. compromised on a few yeah, of them. I was going to say, I think that we'll, we'll probably reveal some of that, but maybe not in this episode because it was really about the top five that we, we had some disagreements on. Yeah. That's what we I said. We were pretty unanimous on the bottom, at least the bottom from seven to 10. We were pretty right. unanimous. That's on. what I said. Yeah. Once, once I get to the top, like I said, five or six. Yeah. It, it gets tough. It gets tricky. Yeah. So, so I think I'm prefacing that by saying, Hey, if we ranked one of your movies low, don't hate us, yeah, please. Because I really do think, I think anybody could make an argument for any 10 of these movies to me. I, I think that there's maybe one that I would not allow you to make an okay. argument for. But I would say, but I would say for the most part, I think anybody could make a pretty persuasive argument for any of these movies. And, and I could be like, yeah, I could see but, that. And then another person could make one for a different movie. And I'd be like, okay, no, I agree with you now. Yeah, yeah. And, and every single one has its own charm. There's something about it that brings it, you know, that almost differentiates it. I think that almost every single one of these movies when we were watching them made me cry. Like they all have something to them that is special. So yeah, like, our, but our number 10, do you want to? Yes. Let's start with number 10. So I think this is probably the easiest one and it's kind of sad, but Rescuers Down Under yeah. is our number 10 and that's the lowest rated one. And again, it's a good movie, though. I mean, even at number 10, it's a good movie. The problem is it's going up against some of the biggest classics of all yeah, time. Yeah, like the biggest heavy hitters. And it's going into as a sequel, and it's a sequel of a movie. And it's the first animated sequel that Disney made. Yes. So it is going up. And it had been, I forget when the original one was made. Um, it was in the, the 70s. Yeah. yeah so it was... It's, it was quite a gap there. So it was a 13 years. So it was the longest time period between sequels ever. And it was Disney's first sequel. So, but it was a, it was a 13 year gap on it. So the rescues down under came out in 1990. Right. But you didn't need to see, and if, if this is something that you're interested in doing and you haven't seen, okay, rescuers, you, don't see rescuers. you don't need to see rescuers. I, I had watched it. Joe hadn't, it didn't impact his understanding at all. And it wasn't like I came into it and knew too much more that was really helpful to my understanding of the story. Yeah, and I will say, as we're going through these, and as much as you can spoil a movie that came out 20 or 30 years ago, I mean, we, we will be discussing kind of the plot, probably some spoilers of it. So if you haven't seen any of these movies and you're kind of interested in seeing it, you may want to 
skip ahead, but it's just a general it, background of rescuers. It's about two mice, Bernard and Bianca, who are part of this like underground mouse rescuers association. <laughs> and it's so cute because yeah. they 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 operate under the nose of humanity. So, you know, they use they these mice travel all around the world and how they do it is they travel in the suitcases of like foreign dignitaries and then they meet in the airport in like um i don't know like in like the luggage claim kind of area like in an area that people don't really go in and then they discuss people who are in need of help and then they send you know people out to help those or not people out but mice out to help these people and it does seem it's inter- it's interesting to me that both of the stories focus on mice helping people so they're not helping other animals they're helping i mean people are animals but you know yeah and i will say again it's a good movie what's interesting is it actually outgrows star wars in france when it came out <laughs> um i believe that oh the original, the original. i'm sorry the original, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. the original the original did so yeah. that's kind of why i think it got a sequel you know so probably a lot of people are asking like why i have a sequel to this movie but the first one i mean france did really well so uh and it has some good uh voice talent in it Paul Newhart is Bernard, and Ava Gabor, it, which is Jaja Gabor's sister, plays Bianca. Right. And I think really what what my biggest issues are with this is there's no music in this one. So in basically all of these movies are yes. musicals except for this one. And They're musicals to different extents. Some of them only have a few songs. This one correct, has none. Correct. But I think my kind of biggest issue is with it is when I was watching it, it's very short. It's only 77 minutes long. And it kind of felt like to me, like an almost an extended Pixar short. Oh. Do you know how Pixar before their movies, a lot of times did those like shorts, they were 10 or 15 minutes. It kind of felt like that. I mean, the opening scene is <laughs> like five to 10 minutes. I think we timed it. It was around 10 minutes yeah. that just seemed like them saying, look at this new animation. Technique it really, that it really was that. With. Yeah. You know what we were talking about a little bit ago of them zooming in on a and going through the grass. There wasn't really any need to that. I mean, Cody free solos a rock. Uh, that I was, was going to say, can we talk about this kid? This is going to be a theme <laughs> throughout all of these movies is just the way Disney does not care for the laws of physics or safety <laughs> or anything in the world. But Cody, uh, who is the young boy who needs who, rescued. Who's from Australia but has no Australian accent. Yes, who needs rescued. He free solos essentially El Capitan. I mean, he does. <laughs> if, you've seen the, if you've seen the free solo documentary on Disney+, Plus, if you haven't, go check it out. But if you've seen that, I mean, he is climbing thousands of feet. And this is the first five minutes of the movie. And he's doing this to save an eagle. Oh, he gets to the top. Yeah, he sees an eagle that's, that's pinned down and then... Okay, this was my favorite part of the movie because he saves this eagle and she's very wild and then she picks him up and she actually takes him to her nest and shows him her her eggs. And this like moment, it made me cry because it was like she was showing this extreme trust of Cody. He had earned it. And then, you know, she was welcoming welcoming him into the most intimate parts of her. I mean, he's a superhero. He free sold a mountain. He's like an (laughs) eight-year-old kid. It was fine. But it, it was a very good setup because yeah. then, of course, the 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 bad guy, McLeach, wants wants this golden eagle. He wants her eggs. He wants her feathers. He wants he wants her. He wants to kill her. Yeah. And so this really helps us build a bond from the very beginning with this eagle and then also with her offspring. Yeah. And this is one of the things I really liked about the movie. McLeach is a proper villain. I mean, he, he legitimately is. He's an awful villain. No, but no, but he's a proper villain in the in the fact that he has no problem kidnapping Cody and basically murdering him or leaving him to die. Like he he just wants the eagle. He he's an animal poacher and he does not have a problem, you know, kidnapping and killing a kid. So I think what you're saying is he's maybe not like the best villain, but what I'm saying is he's he's a proper bad guy. Okay, so here's my issue with McLeach. So wouldn't it be more advantageous for that man to extort the people for cash because he's essentially he's kidnapped Cody. So extort Cody's mother for cash to get the kid back instead of capturing an eagle. You know, the the illegal animal trade, I'm sure it brings in a good bit of money. But I mean, I guess maybe he's trying to stay under the radar. But if he was trying to do that, he wouldn't have kidnapped a child. Yeah. And I think you know, the, the bad guys weren't necessarily multidimensional back then. <laughs> so, I mean, they no. were kind of single-minded. But I think part of it and why, you know, it's interestingly, it's set in the Australian outback. I think it was kind of like, hey, 
you're in the outback, stuff happens, people just go missing, you know, nobody's really going to know. And that's why you need mice to come save them. But (laughs) (laughs) you know, you you never know, you can can get help from the smallest of places. Um, So one other but one thing about McLeach that I liked was really not him himself. It was his sidekick, Joanna, or Johanna, I don't, I think I can't remember what I have Joanna written here. So I'm going to go with that. I believe it's that. Yeah, Joanna. So she is like this monitor lizard, which if you don't, if you're not familiar with animals, it's basically like a big lizard, kind of like a Komodo dragon, but not quite as big. Um, And she is my kind of animal. She is so funny. She's cute. She's mischievous. Like she doesn't really listen very well to McLeach. Um, you kind of get the, she's kind of like that. She's every single one of these bad guys almost seems to have incompetent sidekicks, but she's almost like she works for McLeach, but she doesn't, she's not evil. So I thought that she was awesome. And also I liked Frank the Basilisk who was, um, in the like in his collection of in McLeach's collection of animals and I really liked how this movie showed reptiles as animals that don't have to be bad um I appreciate that because it kind of goes with that lesson that you learned from Steve Irwin growing up that wrestles like reptiles can be beautiful and they are beautiful and they're really cool and they play an important role in the environment okay I'm gonna get off my soapbox now again it, it was a good movie it had you know, like we said, like the first kind of a, the 3D CG camera rotation. Again, it was kind of them showing that off. There was kind of some Tolkien-esque vibes with the eagle saving the day and everything. Um, but overall, I think it's it's a solid movie. I think compared to the other ones, though, it's intense. Um, let's actually hear from Trent and Jenny from the Disney DNA podcast. Jenny actually picked Rescuers Down Under as her favorite movie. Um, So let's hear why she thought that one was the best. And we'll also hear Trent's pick as well. Hey, everyone. This is Trent and Jenny from the Disney DNA podcast. Today, we are going to talk a few minutes about some of our favorite Renaissance Disney movies. And we are actually each taking our own because we did not agree. One of my favorite Renaissance movies was actually The Rescuers Down Under. I always loved movies with animals as a kid. I just was obsessed with animals. I loved this one because I thought Bianca and Bernard were super cute. I loved the story of it being in the Australian outback. I found that really fascinating. I loved the bad guy's pet named Frank. He was like this weird lizard thing, and I always thought he was so funny. The storyline is the mice are going over and they're saving Cody, who's the kid who's been kidnapped. I always just really... The story was very adventurous, okay, but the biggest takeaway I got out of it was no matter how little we are or no matter how little of a difference we make, they had the littlest mice, Pet and Bianca, are the ones who saved this little boy, and it didn't matter who you were that you could make a difference, and as a kid, that really rung true with me. That one's great. Now, for me, I love Beauty and the Beast because it's a wonderful story of boy meets girl. It's relatable when told right the songs in this movie are very catchy and i absolutely love this soundtrack the voice acting is wonderful because who doesn't love angela lansbury as mrs potts she is unbelievable and i grew up watching murder she wrote as a kid and me too it's just one of those fun fun actresses and i just i love her so much and Belle in this movie is just an ordinary girl that just wants to read her book she loves to read me too and give gaston a hard time right that's keeps right. keeps brushing him off, but it's so funny. I love it. The theme of this movie is about inner beauty and how it's showcased. And it's all about the heart that makes this wonderful movie what it is. To me, it's it's more about what's on the inside than outside. So for me, Beauty and the Beast is fantastic because it just shows how much beauty there is on the inside. And it's just kind of funny how we all have this beauty in the beast within us. It's just a matter of which one we show to the world. All right. So thanks again to Trent and Jenny from the Disney DNA podcast for providing their input. I think Jenny's point of, you know, rescuers being the favorite and kind of like what we mentioned is that it's the idea that it doesn't matter how big you are. It's size mm-hmm. doesn't matter to kind of, you know, make a difference that, you know, the, the smallest of, of animals um, can actually make a difference and save somebody's life. So I, I think that's, you know, a really good point. And then Trent's pick of Beauty and the Beast, like I said, that was a very popular one. So we'll be getting <laughs> to Beauty and the Beast later um, as well. So, all right. So for our number nine pick, and I think this is where we start losing some friends here, but it's The Little Mermaid. <laughs> Sorry. And, and the Little Mermaid, and I think why the Little Mermaid 
is, at least for us, so low, low ranked, is it was the first movie in the Disney Renaissance. So it came out in 1989, and I think that's what hurts it. I think because it was the first one, right. yes, it was very good, but they had not perfected the formula yet. They have some music in here, but it is a relatively quick story. It's a relatively... There's not a lot that happens plot-wise, um, and it's kind of a quick movie. I, this is one that I'm looking forward to seeing the live-action remake of it because I do think that there's so much beefing up they can do of this story because, again, the story itself is alluring and it's cool, but it, it was almost like a lot of the characters in it could almost use a little more work. Sebastian's great. He's a lush character. He's funny. He you know, has to kind of act on behalf of the king but also he understands where ariel's coming from like he is a really interesting character ariel herself um you know rebellious teenager but falls in love with a guy the first time she sees him and then chases after him like she's she's definitely impulsive and this kind of reminds me it's almost it's a kind of a romeo and juliet type story and that particular story structure for me doesn't always work um so yeah, that, that was, that was a little rough. And then some of the characters like Scuttle, Scuttle is a patho- pathological liar. Um, <laughs> I don't think he knows that he is though. But, I just yeah. don't think he's smart enough to know that he doesn't know what he's saying. Right. Like whenever he brings things to Ariel and she asks what they are, he just kind of makes up names. And She's kind of gullible too. Yeah, that and she, she believes, believes him and he has no idea. And it's like, wow, that's kind of funny that like, you know, it's 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 an innocent thing, but it is kind of funny to think of him as a pathological liar. That's just more funny than it is anything else. Yeah, but. and I think one of the issues with this is, and this would never happen today. Well, I guess with the remake, it is going to kind of happen. But the fact that your main character loses her voice and doesn't talk for probably like a third of the movie <laughs> isn't really something you want to happen because there's not a lot... When she's not talking, there's not a lot else going on. It's hard to develop her character when we don't know what she's thinking or feeling or any of those um, important emotions that allow you to connect with a character. I think that's really the issue. And then, of course, let's just talk about how, real quick, how Prince Eric is obviously not the prince of charades because she perfectly mimes out that she cannot speak. And he's just like, what? What? Uh, Is there something on your throat? Is there something on my throat? Like, he just doesn't... He doesn't get yeah, it. Yeah, they must not have like a pen and paper either in his kingdom because yeah. you would think just write something down. Can Ariel write? That's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. But he was, yeah, he definitely was not picking up on many clues on the fact that like the dog was like, oh, this is the same person <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yeah, he was, he was definitely missing out a lot. He was very cardboard character. There's not yeah. much substance to Eric uh, as a human being. Yeah, that's the thing. And again, it's, it's kind of, I think it struggled because it was their first movie. And they, to your point, they didn't necessarily invest as much in kind of the character development Mm -hmm. or or kind of some of the plot points i mean ursula a lot of the villain villains kind of their downfall happens pretty quickly but like ursula is this giant sea monster (laughs) at the end and then basically within 30 seconds she gets impaled by the ship and she's done let's just say very quick and then the movie's over by disney renaissance standards this is an epic death that she gets. That's true. I That's mean, true. it is insane how much they reuse the same deaths over and over again. Every single Disney villain almost in the Renaissance era falls to their death. Almost every one. I think it was like eight out of 10 falls to their death. It's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, it has some some great songs as Kiss the Girl. Part of Your World is Fire. Right. It, it's it's incredible. Um, And I think that that is... Part of Your World is kind of the standard that I wish the rest of the movie lived up to because it really does help to establish Ariel's character as a as a uh, a young girl who doesn't really feel like she's in the correct place and she feels she has this un um like unsatisfiable curiosity and so you know that song is is great and I think that that's really what differentiates Little Mermaid from you know some of these other movies on the list and it's why we were tempted to move it up the list because the songs are so great right all right couple thoughts though from watching the little mermaid couple questions and queries i have here <laughs> so one what do mer people eat because obviously <laughs> they can talk to fish they're friends with fish are they vegetarian like i I can't see them eating other fish. Like, how terrible would that be? Like, hey, Sebastian and Flounder, I'm friends with you. Now I'm going to eat you. Well, I think at one point in time in the movie, 
they do call humans fish eaters so i believe that they do not eat fish yeah, it so sounded like kelp. they do not partake of the fish they are mostly eating kelp and underwater lettuce or whatever <laughs> yes. down there. the other thing is in kiss the girl sebastian says eric's name or he talks to him and eric hears him <laughs> so if the if the fish are able to talk to humans and they can hear them why do they not scream don't eat me Like, why are they not just constantly screaming, stop, don't eat me? Because I feel like if you're a person, if you're a fisherman and you pull a fish out and it starts begging to you to let it go, you're going to let it go. So I'm I'm very curious about that. Let it go. And then the last thing is, I don't know if a lot of people caught this, but Ariel's actually a shark murderer. So in the opening (laughs) scene, there's a shark chasing her and flounder. And then... She swims around and the shark gets trapped in a ring and she just leaves it there. And if anybody knows anything about sharks, <laughs> if they are not moving, they cannot breathe. She left that shark there to die. And I don't think they can swim backward. Either, yeah, exactly. Death by know. omission. I there. was going to say, I don't know if this is one of those rumors, animal rumors that, that gets perpetuated or not, but I, I don't know. Do you feel like it might? She may be the be most true. murderous Disney princess of all time. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not her fault. Those were just, so those are just a couple, you know, queries that i had watching this movie i have a lot of queries uh as i go through some of these movies that i will definitely bring up because when you're sitting and watching them and you're really like because we were really watching them trying to analyze like okay what makes this movie good yeah we're taking a lot of notes so it's like you pick up on a lot of this like crazy stuff that's really outlandish um but to your point you know i think the little mermaid it's good it has good songs i do think it struggles a little bit with some of the the side characters, some of the main characters, to your point, you know, Triton isn't necessarily like a fully fleshed out character. Eric's kind of like cardboard. He's, yeah, I mean, he's he has nothing to him. I mean, we talk about how how some of the early Disney prince, princesses have nothing to them. This is a little bit of a later movie, and he also, I mean, Ariel herself doesn't have a lot of. She has a few facets of her personality, but she's not really well rounded. And again, I think it's because she can't speak for a lot of the movie right. that we don't get to know her as well as I would like to know her. Exactly, and it's a quick movie too. It's it's a it's a shorter movie, you know. None of these movies are overly long, but this is definitely on the shorter end of it. And really, as we were going through this, you're going to see, especially when we get towards the top, it really comes down to that of like, okay, who has like the slightly better sidekicks? Who has the more memorable songs? Who's a little bit, you know, funner and a little bit better plot line? So it really kind of all comes down to that nuance. And that's why, again, I think you can, you could make an argument for all of these movies. I mean, I'm sure somebody could convince me Little Mermaid you know, is, is the best movie, but I think just going through this ourselves, we have it at number nine. Right. All right. So number eight, and this one gave me some, some difficulty. Um, I think that seven, eight, nine, you could definitely easily switch these ones around. We put the hunchback of Notre Dame there and number eight. Yeah. Number eight. Yeah. And this one, I mean, I think this movie, um, is a pretty well-rounded movie. The music isn't quite as appealing, although there are some really good songs in it. I think I walked around singing the Feast of Fools, like the Topsy Turvy, Topsy Turvy Day. I, I think I walked around singing that for the next like week after I watched this movie. And that's a song that I didn't even really remember being in it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, this is considered one of Disney's darkest stories. Oh, and it is. And it definitely is. And it was based on the book written by Victor Hugo, who also uh, wrote Les Miserables. And if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen that musical, it's set in, it's set in France, you know, kind of similar time period. And it is very much about downtrodden people, very somber, um, very serious. And so whenever I saw that, I go, okay, this movie makes a lot more sense now (laughs) because it definitely has a Les Mis kind of, very dreary. I mean, it ends kind of positively, but, but not that up. I was going to say, is that the way that Victor Hugo actually ended the the story, though? Because well, I mean, I will say, I mean, it ends. Uh, you know, uh, Frollo dies. I mean, the Hunchback, but Spoiler he doesn't alert. <laughs> <laughs> but but Hunchback, he doesn't. I mean, end up with the person. He's kind of like, I understand. I'm this like disformed person, and I'm just going to live see, here I, myself. I don't think that that's necessarily. I, I don't agree with. I mean, your he kind of he kind of gets. He kind of gets a happy ending, but again, not he, like in the same way. He gets a very happy ending yeah. because he gets... So 
this movie, and I would argue for it, I think it's only dinged by the fact that it's, the music is is um, not as great, as, as strong as it could be, and not as strong as the next movie we have up on the list. But what is really awesome about this movie and what they do a good job of is during the Feast of Fools, when they when Quasimodo finally comes out of Notre Dame and he gets into the streets, he, has, he experiences this, this moment of acceptance, which is something that Frollo drilled in his head that he will never get yeah that's one of the things that i found interesting about this movie is that it really was i mean frollo was a terrible terrible guy he's bad to the bone and he convinced quasimodo that he's just he's ugly and hideous and nobody will ever like him and if he goes out people will just treat him poorly and it, like it really was of like a very serious kind of theme to have in the movie yeah. And I, but like back to my point is he ex- he tastes acceptance and then very quickly has it pulled away whenever the guard throws the tomato at him and then everyone else just kind of globs on and they humiliate him and tie him down and Esmeralda has to cut him out. And I mean, her kindness that she shows to him. And by the way, Esmeralda, I I mean, I know they they make a big deal out of how beautiful she is. Um, she's definitely a character that's a little sexualized. But she's but voiced she, by Demi Moore. Yeah, it, but she is such a strong female character. She doesn't take any crap. She reminds me of Captain Jack Sparrow. She, in her way... Like Very her, much that vibe, yes. Yeah, she has this like really cool, I, I can make this happen, and you don't quite know how it's going on. Like it's her, her whole escape routine. Um, and there's a little bit of mysticism there with her getting away in smoke and things like that. But yeah, she's a very interesting, intriguing character and she's also sassy and she has really great comebacks. So I love her. Yeah. And that was one of the things to your point of the mysticism that I think kind of was a little, was a little unclear for me. And I think that's what kind of lowered this movie for me is that, you know, is magic real? Isn't it real? Because it, it, seems very much set in um, uh, the physical world. Yes, there is, you know, she's kind of doing some like smoke and mirrors tricks, but then Quasimodo talks to gargoyles that seem to come to life. <laughs> and I'm not sure, are we supposed to believe that they are magical gargoyles that he can talk to or that he is so cooped up and alone that this is all his imagination? Because he, you know, we see he recreates the square and all the people in it and you know he clearly has an imagination that he's kind of imagining what everybody's doing out there so are these gargoyles a projection of him to kind of be his friend but then we do see them somewhat interact with like the birds and things so that wasn't clear to me and i think it, just little things like that that are kind of muddied or or what you kind of have to nitpick almost whenever you're ranking these movies. Yeah, the thing that so I agree with you and I think that the only indication that we got that they that they were actually maybe real the gargoyles is it almost seems like Notre Dame itself is somewhat alive because at the very end when Frollo ends up on that one um you know, those that one protrusion from Notre Dame, it almost seemed like the castle, or not the castle, I want to call it a castle, but the church itself was cognizant that he was there and almost broke off on purpose so that he could not murder Esmeralda and Quasimodo. Right. And I do think the gargoyles were a little bit of like weaker sidekicks in this. Like I, I didn't care for them as much as some of the sidekicks in the other movies. Um, one of the other interesting things... They had things, some funny lines, but yeah. Yeah, they're, just they're compared not, to some of the other ones. You know, I think one of the other interesting things is the 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 gypsy at the beginning who's kind of laying out this tale of Quasimodo for us. <laughs> He's kind of telling it to the people. He's a character later on, and when Quasimodo comes to the Court of Miracles and is trying to warn them that Frollo's coming, he like gives them a hard time. Like it seems like he was like <laughs> on his team at the beginning talking about this, you know, how how we should feel bad for Quasimodo and this tale. And then he like turns on him. It, I found again, it's, it's just kind weird, of, it was a weird thing. It was yeah, a weird kind it, of plot point. It is weird. Cause like he does make that thing that, you know, that comment, well, why didn't you tell us that you weren't with, you know, you weren't trying to harm us. And it, it is kind of like, well, why wouldn't you give him a chance to talk first? And I think that maybe that was just supposed to be reflective of the fact that, you know, the Romani people, the people that they're talking about, the gypsies, um, they have been historically mistreated throughout, you know, throughout history. And so maybe that he has this, you know, he's fine now or maybe he's working for somebody else um, because he's always had to watch his back and not been able to necessarily trust the people that he meets or sees as a value. 
but yeah, that, that was a little confusing. Um, another thing that was really confusing to me was Quasimodo's, um, his like disabilities. So if you see him walking around, he walks with a limp and you know, he has like an issue with his back and things like that. But then when he moves on the outside of that castle, he looks like Tarzan slash Spider-Man. Here we like, go. Free soul. I was just going to mention that somebody else free soloing stuff again. He is scaling Notre Dame with ease. And I mean, he's, and and it's even understandable. So I, I was trying to figure this out in my head and I'm like, okay, so Quasimodo, he, you can see the way that he's physically developed is he has big arms, a bigger upper body. So you can say, okay, that's muscular. It's from ringing the bells. So maybe, you know, he's able to swing on things because, and have really good dexterity in his hands because of the bells and his job and basically all that. But then there's certain scenes where he is literally bounding on the thinnest of um, protrusions again from the castle or from not the castle from the church. And he's standing on them and he, he walks with a limp. So how is he balancing so well on that above? And he's felt like, I don't know how tall Notre Dame is, but he's at least hundreds of feet above the ground. So how does that really work? Um, that kind of did draw me out of the movie a little bit, just because I can believe he has a superpower in his upper body strength, but he does, he is very balanced on his feet when I don't know if he should be. Um, another thing that I, one thing that I did really like about this movie is they develop the character of Phoebus, Captain Phoebus, very well. His first scene in the movie is so telling. It's illustrative that he's a good, well-intentioned man when he sees Esmeralda and he gives her money and then, you know, the guards give her a hard time and then he ends up helping her escape and then gives her the money back that they took from him. Um, it, he is He is a character that, you know you can see he's been put in a, in a bad spot and he makes the right choices. So I, I think he's one of the, the highlights of the movie besides Esmeralda um, and Quasimodo. I love seeing Quasimodo as somebody who's not physically perfect being the, the main character who's highlighted. That's rare in most Disney movies. Somebody with a physical deformity is a bad character. Yeah, I was going to say that's kind of my, I think, one big point that around Hunchback and even like Pocahontas and, and some of these other ones and why I'm really excited to see the live action Mulan because looking at these movies, a lot of them have very adult, serious themes about them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're looking at Hunchback, just the point you said of, of, you know, somebody with a disability, they are, you know, the lead. They're not necessarily seen as, as somebody. And the whole idea that, you know, people think he's lesser than them, but he's really not. And we, and we should not treat people like that. Um, you know, Pocahontas has, you know, very adult themes of, of an us versus them. I mean, them, you know, the, the people from Britain, from London calling, you know, the Indian savages and things and that, and Mulan as well. I mean, very much us versus them that these, I feel like are the movies Disney needs to be making live action remakes of mm -hmm. because they have, they have really, good pieces to them that as an animated kids movie you can kind of touch on and is there for the adults and which is why i think you know so many of these disney movies do well because there's pieces there for adults as well but you can't really get too dark with it for a kids movie but that's what they should be making these live action sequels of because like if you look at mulan it's gonna be pg-13 and they've already talked about this is the first pg-13 live action remake you know it's not gonna have music in it i think it's gonna be for an older audience a little bit and i think they could do something very similar with hunchback and pocahontas where like with hunchbacks instance you know we're saying it's not maybe the best of the animated movies but i feel like if you made this live action and you kind of really double down on some of these themes mm -hmm. that it would be an incredible live action movie. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it has, it has some real potential and there's definitely need for it in the market. I mean, if you look at books and it was adapted into a movie wonder, um, that's a book about a boy who, if you haven't ever read the book, I, I read it all in a day and I cried maybe eight times. It was, it's really well written, but it's a boy with a physical, like a, a deformity on his face. Um, and so it proves that characters like this and movies like this can do well. And it also, it's needed in our culture. So I think that, yeah, I would love to see this one adapted. And then one final thing that I, I really want to get to, um, is that the ending of this movie is really well done. Um, 
not necessarily the way that Frollo dies. If you look at that scene and then you look at the way Scar dies, uh, they are almost, it's almost like a plagiarized scene right out of right off of it where Frollo breaks some news to Quasimodo about his mother actually you know not giving him up and uh he that he killed his mother and whatever it's very similar to the I killed Mufasa thing um and then he falls off of a high place just like what happens to Scar but the part at the very end when he comes out of the cat when Quasimodo comes out of the castle and the everyone stares at him and does, doesn't see, we don't know what everyone's going to do and it mirrors that feast of fools scene but instead a little girl runs up to him and gives him a hug um i lost it that is such a powerful scene and it also is um it speaks to something about kids that i love in that they can kind of sometimes see things that adults have a hard time seeing she could see quasimodo's inner self and that he is beautiful and so she reinforced that and then everybody else in the crowd almost looked to her for that guidance and that, that's what kids can do sometimes so it, it it's, a, it's a really powerful scene yeah you're right and, and i definitely i think now kind of thinking about it more i think you're right i mean quasimodo definitely did get i think a happier ending than i kind of initially remembered and mm-hmm. so it, it did end a little bit more upbeat um, than i initially thought and it is again you know disney making a point and I think kind of taking a stance and a lot of these movies taking, I think a very progressive stance on some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, think of the stuff in the early nineties, mid nineties, um, you know, is really interesting. So, all right. So moving on to number seven. So our number seven movie is Pocahontas. And again, we kind of, I kind of talked about Pocahontas, you know, it, again, very adult themes, very, you know, interesting for a children's movie in the mid nineties, you know, really showing kind of the portrayal of Native Americans and how people coming over to America. I mean, this again, this whole us versus them. I mean, calling them, you know, savages. I think, you know, in today's day, I'm not sure. Is that kind of problematic that they're referring to the Native <laughs> well, Americans like that? And they're referring and the Native Americans are referring to the white men or the white devils at, back to them as savages, too. So, yeah, I, I don't know what to think think about some of this and i think that we hit this in a few of the movies uh pocahontas i think there might even be a little bit of that with mulan um where there is some areas of it that seem i don't know like is this pc is it not is i'm not really sure so we're kind of gonna address them just at face value i think yeah i mean i think they make very important points and i mean i think it is again it's it was kind of progressive, I think, of Disney to make right. these movies and to kind of point out these issues and these stances and, you know, not just make it where it seemed like, oh, hey, these people came over and treated the Native Americans really great and everything was happy, you know, right. that, that they kind of, and again, this is based on a, a story, a tale, you know, they kind of showed some of that conflict. And, and yeah, again, I, I'm not sure, you know, how well all of that stands up today. But I do think you you're right in that it was it is progress. This movie makes it, it is more progressive than than the world was in the 1990s, and so maybe looking back at it, we might look at it and say this isn't very woke. Um, but looking at it for in the scope of the 90s, it's like wow, you know, this is when we used to learn in school about Christopher Columbus and and you know how great he was, but we didn't learn about some of the things that happened with the Native Americans that Christopher Columbus's crew kind of interacted with so i do think that yeah it it was important yeah all right so going through the movie itself again i think it's a it's a good story um you know you have some great songs color of the wind is in this um you know pocahontas i think as in terms of the animation is very interesting. Um, again, Tom Bancroft kind of joked that her hair was a character un- unto herself. And I could totally see yes. that. <laughs> um, and, and it was. And, and I think it, w- it was a solid story. Um, again, I mean, the music was good. I don't think there was probably enough hits in it for me. And it was just... Well, I think that that's really where it differentiated itself from hunchback though is i think that there are some like there are some songs in this one that you're like oh yeah that's that is 
that's a really it's good definitely song. more memorable yeah so colors in the wind and uh i think it's called just just around the river bend those are both really great songs that came out of this but i will say that the rest of the songs in this are very um kind of dark not very good um you have that like there's a dig song there's the savages song and you're like oh my goodness are they singing about this in a kid's movie that they could be sing- like kids could walk around singing this stuff yeah i think my biggest thing with this movie is that's just kind of unresolved. Like there's, you know, there's this driving action and it's, it's John Smith and Pocahontas. And then at the end he gets shot and, and it's great and everything, you know, wait, that, wait, it's, well, it's, not, it's not great that he gets shot, <laughs> but I mean, they, the, they kind of come together, you know, he protects Pocahontas and things. He gets shot, but then it's just kind of unresolved. Cause he's just kind of like, well, they love each other, but he's going to go back and she's like, I need to stay with my family. And he's like, I'm only going to live if I go back. He got a gunshot wound. He's not surviving a trip across <laughs> gonna, the Atlantic. I was going to this is a very like La La Land type ending. Yeah, where yeah it's, it's just, very much. Yeah, it's, it's very, very it's frustrating. Unsa- and, and again, as a kid, you're not going to catch this. So I, I don't think that, it, but I could see like, as an adult, you're looking at this and you're saying he should have stayed. He should have stayed there because he would have been happier. And then he could have lived out the rest of his days with Pocahontas. But yeah, he, I mean, it's what a month trip back yeah, probably I mean, does he think he's going to survive that and there's I, no doctor on the ship it seems yeah. so they're not going to be able to remove the bullet he's going to die on the ship gangrene's going to set in like yeah. it's yeah it was, it was just kind of a we, we invested so much in this relationship and then yeah it's very much like la la land that's it's a good comparison it just kind of ends and i think that was kind of one of my reasons for not liking it in terms of the sidekick characters you know you have flit and and miko i mean they're good but they don't Ooh. Oh, well, I think, well, I think what the thing is, they don't talk necessarily. So you, you have some interaction with them. Realism and that, yeah, that, I mean, whether again, it's PC or not, that connection of, you know, native Americans to the land and then to nature in itself. Um, you know, it kind of just shows that Mulan or not Mulan. It just shows that Pocahontas has a really great relationship with nature and, they trust her definitely and i do think they do a nice job with them of conveying emotions and personalities without mm-hmm. them talking so that's what i want to say i don't say i don't think they are bad kind of sidekicks uh, yeah i was gonna say miko is probably the reason why i love he's really, i was gonna say miko's really good i think flint is is good well, they Could had to they make ma- his personality yeah. different from Miko. Miko is yeah. very outgoing and out there. Flit is more cautious. And so he's kind of, you know, he's a foil for Miko, essentially. Right. He's cautious. He doesn't want to go to John Smith right away. But I think like if you look at our at the top picks that we have, all of the sidekicks all of these sidekicks talk. And I think having that dialogue interaction adds another level that just again kind of just ups it just a little bit more and and kind of separates, you know, the the top top from kind of the mid tier, which I think but, you know Pocahontas. And is. this movie has really interesting other side characters too. And it's almost like there's, I don't want to say there's too many because there's not. But uh, Grandmother Willow is amazing. She is funny. She has a lot of. I mean she has a lot of agency. She's very, she helps to guide Pocahontas. And I really appreciate her as a character. I appreciate their, them kind of showing her as that, like the wise old sage character, kind of a Yoda or a, um, like grandmother from Moana kind of character. She's, she's really awesome. And then also, um, you know, even Pocahontas's mother, she's not in the movie, but I really enjoy the incorporation of her because the father makes comments about how, she's essentially the wind and how the wind in the movie, if you notice is always kind of blowing in the direction where Pocahontas needs to go. And at the end, it seems to be that the wind that is what settles their father, her father's mind on what to do with John Smith. He doesn't kill John Smith because the wind kind of interferes and and makes him realize that, you know, John Smith's not the bad guy. It's not, you know, he's being, he's not understanding what's going on. So he, shows him mercy um so that that is something that i i really i think that this movie has some depth because there's a lot of symbolism to it and even like percy the dog and how percy and miko hate each other throughout the entire movie i love that yeah that was great they hate each other and then they make i think john smith makes some comment about how um two sides if they want to fight you can't prevent them from fighting and then right after that they reconcile 
And this is symbolic, of course, of what is going to happen with the, you know, the Native Americans and the white men, the British men that come over, um, that if they do want to fight, but then they find a common ground and realize that, you know, they're, they're not enemies. They're on the same side. And Percy made the right decision because he stayed. Yeah, he did. I mean, John Smith should have taken a page out of his book because he he knew he was like, "There's no way I'm getting back on that boat and making yeah, it back." So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I think it was it was a really solid movie. I will say it did get hurt because we watched it in order, and we definitely we watched. So Pocahontas came right after The Lion King, so that's all. Those are some hard uh, paw prints to fill right there. Definitely. So all right, so I think we will stop here for today, and that leaves our top six. And I think like. Like we mentioned, the top six is where it gets, it gets tough. dicey. Yeah, it gets tough. And I think, you know, it's almost pr- as precarious as Cody climbing up the side of that mountain. I don't know. He did it with ease. So <laughs> I, I think it might be might be more precarious than that. But yeah, so we will save that. Uh, we'll save those top six for next week when we will go through and, and kind of, you know, talk about, again, these are the, the biggest movies I think that Disney has done. They're, they are the classics, the modern era classics here. Um, we've settled on a list of our we six. We like to call them modern because we're getting older. <laughs> yeah. So we settled on our six here, but I think as we uh, kind of go through it and talk through it some more, we probably will have some differences that we will uh, will hash out. So uh, make sure you tune in next week to you know hear the conclusion of this. We also have um, you know some more selections from some other Disney podcasters we will uh, we'll play next week as well. And so thank you to them for taking the time to send us the sound bites too. Yes, definitely. And so thanks everybody again for listening. Uh, make sure you leave us a rating or a review. If you don't subscribe yet, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for lending us your ears. And we'll see you here next Monday for the uh, conclusion of the top Disney Renaissance movie. Bye. Bye.